Hello there, all you beautiful cats and kittens. This is We Are Here Tomorrow. I am Zach. Across from me is John. Meow. <laughs> and this is this is our podcast. I am so sorry the quarantine brain has already set in. Um, if you haven't watched Tiger King, please go watch it. It is not related at all to the episode, but it is a welcome treat. Speaking of treats and wild stories... To introduce today's podcast, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey to get used to it. I want you, Zach, to be my guest for a second and think of, imagine yourself in a story. Imagine you're an astronaut on the International Space Station. All right, strapped in. You're working around, maybe checking some comms, uh, doing some experiments, and then all of a sudden, red flashing lights and warning alarm goes off, pew, pew, and the captain comes on the intercom, unknown object incoming. You panic. You're in space. You know that something is traveling at 16,000 miles per hour, 20 times faster than most bullets, coming at you. You don't know what it is. You don't know what's happening. So what do you do? You and the rest of the crew decide to get into the rockets that are attached to the International Space Station. Okay. And you need to be prepared for an emergency escape. In a fire drill-like way, you're anxious, you're orderly. You get into the rockets, you shut down the station, you only have an hour to do that, and you tensely wait in the rockets, ready to launch back to Earth if you need to. Meanwhile, an object is hurtling towards the International Space Station, ground control is estimating that path of the unknown object, and you wait, hoping that it doesn't hit you. Ground control uh, would give you the signal to launch home. So you're just waiting, hoping that you don't have to exit and see the International Space Station blown to smithereens. And odds are, the object misses the International Space Station, and in fact, it does. The crisis is avoided, and you, Zach, as the astronaut, uh, you survive, your whole crew, everything's fine. This seems like a crazy story, but in fact, it actually happened, I believe, four times, at least once in 2011, uh, when some unknown object in low Earth orbit, pretty close to Earth, where the International Space Station rotates, came within a couple football fields or less, which is very close for space. And the reason this is really important is because there are way more things going up in space every month, every day, seemingly, and more objects that we need to detect and we need to track and there must be a reason to do all of this and send so much stuff into low Earth orbit if we're putting space agencies in risk. Right. So, so this impact is not by like a meteorite or anything like that. That's it's actually by a man-made object. Exactly. It was no meteorite. It was some space trash, effectively, maybe something that was discarded from a rocket as it went to the moon or further into space. So today we want to use that as kind of a transition to. Let you know that low Earth orbit is here. A lot of things are going up into space. A lot of them, you hear about SpaceX of the world, etc., are launching things into low Earth orbit. So uh, we want to explain what that is, where low Earth orbit is going. There's some fascinating economics behind it and some interesting social impacts that we'll we'll dive into in today's episode. So we're kind of looking at the commercialization of leo of low earth orbit exactly as as you the viewer probably know listener uh the international space station has been in orbit for better part of two decades Mm -hmm. 
but now a lot more non-governmental entities are deciding, hey, let's put our objects into space because we think it can do some good for humanity and we think people will pay for the services that are very expensively created. Right on. Okay. So I think it's useful to actually differentiate between low Earth orbit versus what else is out there, right? Because there are other types of orbits. Yeah, definitely. And maybe we start even further back. So we launch a lot of stuff into space. Okay. And some of those are the big missions you see and hear about for decades, going to Mars, going to the moon, mm-hmm. things that are on planets. But what we're going to be focusing on and what more launches are doing are sending satellites into space where they're not landing on anything. They're just floating around in space trying to do something useful for humanity. And we're even scoping within satellites. Uh, we don't really care about the satellites that, quote unquote, look away from Earth. Hubble, for example, uh, is a common telescope and other probes that look away. We care about the satellites that are actually primarily looking back at Earth, helping us understand more things about Earth in different ways. But there are kind of three different levels of satellites that look back at Earth. Okay, gotcha. They're defined by the orbit that you uh, referenced, an orbit, of course, just being circulating uh, a planet, in our case, Earth. So the three bands are based on how far an object is from the Earth's surface. So at the very far, the stations... Um, at about, I think, 36,000 kilometers away, you have geostationary or geo-orbit. And what that means is these satellites are very far away. They're so far away, we're not going to get into that too much, but they don't actually move relative to the Earth. So something that is above Alaska is going to stay above Alaska. Yeah, so I think the important note to make is that they, they are moving very quickly, but they're matching the rotation speed of Earth exactly. Correct. So when if you were to look up right underneath a geosynchronous satellite, you're always going to see it because relative to Earth, it is not moving. Right. In the scope of everything, it is rotating as fast as Earth is rotating. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you have just below that, anything that's closer doesn't have that stationary, quote-unquote, uh, characteristic. So instead, it is in medium Earth orbit and then... Even closer yet, between about 120 miles from the Earth's surface to uh, 1,200 miles, you have low Earth orbit. And low Earth orbit is really interesting. We'll get into this, but that's what we're, we care about today. Right. And so I think an important thing to look at when we're looking at all of these orbits uh, is, is speed, right? So we're talking about the geosynchronous orbit, for example. You can leave an object up there, and because you are rotating at the same speed of, as Earth rotates, relative to us, it's not moving, other than being 36,000 kilometers higher up. As you move lower into the orbits, physics dictates that you must actually move faster to right. maintain that. Let's dive into yeah. that. Okay. So, so low Earth orbit, uh, the radius of the Earth is uh, something like uh, 6,000 kilometers so if you're only another 200 kilometers above that, or maybe 2,000, you actually aren't that far from Earth. So you have a lot of the gravitational effects of Earth. As you get super far away, the gravity uh, doesn't affect things as much. But because you're basically like in Earth's gravity, you 
need to have a way to stay outside or prevent yourself from crashing back to earth. Mm -hmm. And so satellites, these metal contraptions, which we'll discuss plenty more are constantly being pulled down to earth satellites. They don't have uh, a constant motor pushing them forward. Instead, they fly be spinning around the earth so fast that you reference Zach, uh, much like a crazed kid on a merry-go-round, when that merry-go-round gets going, kids are holding on for dear life because that spin is forcing them, pushing them away from the center of the merry-go-round. Much like if you're a satellite and you're spinning around so quickly, you're being forced away from Earth just as much as Earth is pulling you back in. This is the centripetal force Correct. that people talk about. Yeah, so that's maintaining your your stable orbit is essentially the centripetal force that is throwing you out, just like that crazy kid on the merry-go-round, is equal actually to the gravitational force that's pulling you back in towards Earth. So once you can make those two equal, you can maintain a, a stable orbit. Right. And I think the hard part then is, for, for context, a low Earth orbit satellite is rotating, is traveling at about uh, 4,500 miles per second. Mm -hmm. So... Zach, a big question and a huge part of why today we're talking about low Earth orbit, why other companies are as well, is how do we get to how do we get a metal contraption flying at that speed at that height? I believe rockets have something to do with this. <laughs> yes, I would believe in this case it is actually rocket science. Um, so we've got a couple. There's several dozens and dozens of different systems that actually pull us out of the gravity well that is Earth. Um, the big ones that we're going to highlight and the ones that are kind of the industry standard right now um, is SpaceX's Falcon 9, and that also has the Falcon 9 Heavy. And then you also have the Atlas V rocket by, um, by ULA, which is a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed Martin. The big deal here between do these two consumer competitions is what you've kind of seen why SpaceX is always in the news is that SpaceX is going or trying to greatly reduce the the fiscal hurdle that it takes to actually get to low Earth orbit. And they're doing that by making their rockets as reusable as possible. So in the past, before the Falcon 9 program, you launched a rocket up to space and nothing was coming back down. Um, they were either stages that were burning up in the atmosphere. Um, there were certain engines and tank components that sometimes could be recoverable. Uh, so, for example, they would drop into the ocean and they could be recovered by a team. But even at that point, you're really just saving on the material cost. Um, they still have to bring back these stages, clean them up, uh, vet them out for use. And what SpaceX's ultimate goal is that you will be able to launch a rocket or launch a piece of cargo into space, that rocket will return to Earth, return to the landing pad, and within 24 hours, you will actually be able to use that rocket engine again. So if you've seen any of the videos of the SpaceX rocket boosters returning in a very sci-fi fashion, returning and re-landing on the launch pad that they launched from, that's the Falcon 9 program. That's part of what we're talking about. Right, and maybe for some context as to why how important that is, how much you can save from that innovation and some others that you'll talk about. Uh, back in the 1980s, it cost somewhere in the, the order of 
I want to say $18,000 per kilogram to send something into space. And much like on a plane, you buy a seat. Uh, in space, it's all about weight. So you're buying how many kilograms you can send up, kind of no matter the size. That, that matters a little bit, but but less so. Where So if $18,000 was how much it cost in the 1980s, uh, today it's about uh, $2,000 per kilogram. So you've actually seen about a 85% drop in price to the Falcon 9s. Right, yep. Um, and so now we're, they've been, you know, steadily making innovations to achieve that number, to achieve that, that much higher efficiency. Um, but they are starting to hit a little bit of the walls of, of physics, what we can physically do with the current conventional rocket systems we have. So SpaceX's goal is that, well, since we're hitting that physical brick wall, we might as well try and recover cost by actually reusing these rockets. So uh, depending on which Falcon you're looking at, the Falcon 9 or the Falcon Heavy, they're able to return 25 to 40% of the actual, I'm sorry, about 25 to 38% of the actual cost. So what that means is you're, you're still burning up all of your rocket fuel, right? But the first stage is returning. So that first stage is, is the primary stage that's actually getting you up to speed and getting you to orbit. Then you have a second stage that's much, much smaller, and that typically works to actually get whatever the cargo is into a stable orbit once you've left the atmosphere. Um, and then that decouples from your second stage and you essentially, you have your satellite or you have your your crewed bay or whatever it, whatever it is. Um, that second stage is still not recoverable. That's their biggest current hurdle. Um, that burns up upon reentry and they, they're not able to recover those at all. Which is maybe, uh, Elon Musk has said that the difference between the Falcon 9 and the Starship will be another 10x probably drop in cost for low Earth orbit. So if we're at 2,000 kilograms or $2,000 per kilogram right now, going to Starship, which is this massive ship where presumably they will be able to recover more of it and reuse it even easier, you're going down to $200 per kilogram, which is still a lot more than a commercial flight, but is very cheap, you know, roughly 1% of where it was in the 1980s. Um, and kind of just to give everyone an idea of price per launch. Uh, so SpaceX's cost obviously changes depending slightly on the customer that is is paying them for this launch. But a typical Falcon 9 launch is about 60 th- or $60 million. $62 million is, I believe, what they actually list on their website. Uh, move, that is getting you 22, just under 23,000 kilograms of usable cargo space. The Falcon Heavy is essentially the same system. It's just got two additional boosters um, so that you can lift about three times as much. But to kind of give you a, a look then at the competition, the Atlas V rocket, which can carry about 19,000 kilograms, still costs about $73 million per launch. And again, you're not recovering any of that price or any of that cost. Whereas with SpaceX, they're touting that they can at least recover about 25% of that value upon the return of their, of their booster. Um, so it's a huge, it's a huge difference. It's still, we're still talking a ton of money 
but it's a huge difference to save 25 percent of of 62 000, or 62 million dollars mm-hmm. right and there's been some other innovations too uh i don't know if you looked into this but they used to never launch multiple satellites at a time so instead of saying you know facebook if they're making a satellite and they want it launched but it's not going to take up the entire rocket nose cone cargo bay they can instead say we're going to launch several at a time uh SpaceX famously did this where they launched, I want to say it was 60-some of their... Yeah, 64, yeah. 64 of their Starlink um, satellites all at the same time. I think India, for some reason, their government, their space program has the record with 104. So if you're sharing those costs, it's still very expensive, but at least the costs come down and you can put a lot more smaller satellites into space. Gotcha. And the important thing to take away from this is that unlike the other technologies that we sometimes cover in our podcast, the the technology to get us to this low Earth orbit, while it's definitely still having continuous improvements done, it's here. I, I'm not sure exactly the amount of SpaceX launches that they've done, but between SpaceX and the Atlas V rocket, we're looking at hundreds of, of reliable launches now to date. Um, so we're not really looking at a technology that's just being vetted out. We're looking at a technology that's moving away from that initial prototype phase and into a more commercially viable phase. So it is here. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and maybe what we should talk about next is is what exactly it is doing. Right. And we glossed over this a little bit, but we like, talked about how do? satellites... What can we do? We, we talked about how satellites are looking back at Earth and whatever they can do by looking back at Earth. Some are also looking away from Earth, but the ones we care about are primarily looking back. What can they do? And they basically are a communication device. So a satellite can record anything and then send it back to Earth. Of course, uh, we talked about those geosynchronous satellites that are always floating above Alaska or some specific place. That's not the case with the low Earth orbit because they have to move around so much, even relative to the Earth's rotation. They are passing over every 90 to 120 minutes. And John, just that I don't know that we ever stated the actual altitudes of low Earth orbit. Do you have those? Yeah, so it's, it's roughly 200 kilometers to 2,000 kilometers, or previously I said 120 miles to 1,200 miles. Gotcha. So pretty close, and that's relative to the Earth's radius of uh, 6,000, uh, roughly, um, kilometers, or maybe miles. We can check that. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty close to us. It has to rotate around a lot. So instead of having one satellite that does a bunch of stuff sitting above Alaska, what they do instead is, you know, the customer, their location still really matters. So either you have to save the recordings, whatever the satellite is recording as it rotates around the earth. And then every time it's overhead, which if you happen to be in the the circle um, that it's rotating above the earth, it's going to be every, you know, 90 to 120 minutes, and then it will send the data or you have a network of a bunch of satellites that are always rotating overhead and they're all spaced out so that there's always something overhead as one satellite is exiting your overhead space quote unquote another one is entering it to continue those communications right and and what is the reason i guess to if if the geosynchronous satellites are so easy to work with you know we toss it up in a certain 
orbit, and it's essentially always accessible. It's always in one stationary location relative to us, right? So, so why do things in low Earth orbit then? Yeah, so some reasons are it, it does take a, a lot more energy to get to geosynchronous orbit, maybe twice as much as low Earth orbit. Uh, but uh, some other huge things are the low Earth orbit allows you to have a lower latency. So think about this. Uh, light is primarily a radio wave, same thing, how we communicate from satellite to satellite or from ground to satellite. And if you're communicating from, say, your phone, if you have a satellite phone for geosynchronous to the satellite and then has to go down to a station on the Earth and then has to go back to the satellite and then back to your phone, Mm -hmm. those distances, the light has to travel add up to a fair amount where okay. you might have a a delay if you will of half a second or a full second even and that's pretty tough to work with uh people when they make websites they want to make the user interface less than about a quarter of a second delay so anything above half above a quarter second honestly is people freak out and they they feel like they can't use their technology it's a terrible user experience mm-hmm. uh so Instead, if you're much closer, if you have these satellites that are nearby, you can pretty easily uh, communicate quickly to them. So that's one of the big things. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, and just to, just to follow up on your point about it taking much more energy and much more cost to get you up to geosynchronous orbit, um, right on SpaceX's price page for different Falcon 9 uh, uh, voyages or missions, they lay out what they can do to different orbits. So, for example, all the numbers that we've been using up until now, that just shy of 23,000 kilograms, um, is the cargo capacity of the Falcon 9 to low Earth orbit. Now, if you want to stick something in geosynchronous orbit, you're decreasing that by a little bit more than half. So we can take about 80 or 8,300 kilograms up to geosynchronous orbit. So there's a, a very appreciable difference between sticking something up in low Earth orbit and traveling that extra several thousand kilometers to get it to geosynchronous orbit. Right, right. Some other advantages of low Earth orbit is the satellites are closer to Earth. So if you're doing imaging or you know things that need to be measured on Earth, you're actually closer to them. So you can measure them often in higher fidelity. You can also make smaller satellites, uh, which can save on cost. The smaller satellites and being closer to Earth um, also allows the electronic systems to last longer because there are some bands uh, as you go out further in orbit that have more radiation damage, which can affect and just basically kill your satellite on accident. So that's some of the advantages. Maybe it's worth going into how you and I today are even affected by low earth orbit satellites and honestly for the average joe the biggest thing is probably maps uh your maps uh, you know you go to google maps on your phone on your computer whatnot those maps weren't taken from an airplane those maps were taken those those photos were taken from satellites this is pretty obvious but honestly this is one of the the main things that uh, low earth orbit satellites affect us today now if you're not an average joe maybe you're an advanced joe like an explorer out in a really remote area you might have a you probably have a satellite phone and depending on your network if you're on say iridium which is one of the companies you would have uh, a phone that can communicate with 
60-some satellites in low Earth orbit to send calls and text messages and download data at an embarrassingly small rate, uh, like 10 kilobytes per second, which is completely unusable uh, for most people, but is useful for them. Otherwise, maybe if you're a really advanced environmental researcher, so these are getting more niche and more niche as we go, if you're one of them, you might actually have uh, access to maps and some atmospheric measures over time that will allow you to study how the Earth is changing, how climate change is uh, doing. Not good. Um, (laughs) Or if you're even more niche, you might be a military powerhouse like the United States or China or Russia, and you might have reconnaissance or spy satellites up in the sky that are doing confidential things that you and i don't really know about but are can only be thought of as counterintelligence or intelligence trying to understand what the uh, opposition is doing so that they can be stronger and have an advantage in the field right okay so so that telecommunications is really our main is the main affect that we're seeing or is the main yeah. effect that we're seeing right i think i think the mapping maybe is in addition to telecommunications, mm-hmm. but if you think of that as being some sort of communication in itself, right. Right. then yes. Right. So yeah, yeah. Boiled down, it's it's that that speed or that ease of communication between what we do now versus what what we could maybe do in the future. Um, I know right now, the vast majority of us just communicate with uh, you know an internet service provider or um, or a telecom company, and that's all very land based, very local. Right. You're saying for for the the 3G, 4G that goes into my phone or the Wi-Fi that I have in my house, I'm working through Verizon or through right. Comcast, people that have uh, infrastructure, if you will, on the ground that's connecting all these things. Right, yeah, you have, to, you have to have that infrastructure there. So I can't walk out into the middle of nowhere, Montana, and hope that I get signal on my Verizon phone, right? Right, unless um. Verizon has done the work to lay a bunch of lines mm-hmm. that connect from some hub all the way out to a cell tower that is then shooting much like a giant Wi-Fi antenna shooting the the signal to your phone. Right. And that's I hope we get corrections, but that's honestly what that those cell towers are, right? For lack yeah. of a better term, yeah. Okay. Um so what LEO satellites get you and what the main advantage is is that that infrastructure would exist in low earth orbit. We're not building that infrastructure on land. So we can maybe much more effectively build a wide range of an infrastructure that, that spans a significant part of the globe without having to do as much of that legwork. Right. Right. It's, It's still very expensive, but think of it as you can quickly cover the entire globe if you want to versus the, the work necessary to, build all those lines and figure out how to get the telephone wire, the fiber optic cables up to rural Montana, into Alaska, northern Canada, etc. Right, right. So yeah, okay, so going off the fact that on terrestrially or on Earth, we have our, our AT&Ts and our Verizons and our telecom companies. Who is actually looking to get into this LEO potential market space right if there if there is one which we do think there is right and maybe we should talk about who has been in it talk about nasa and the other space agencies so yeah jumping off right there 
Obviously, the primary stakeholders in low Earth orbit right now are the various space agencies of the world. We're obviously going to focus on NASA because NASA has the one and only international space station. Uh, they run the... Go yeah, they share it. They share it. Y- yes, yes, they share it. They, yes, they share it. They, I think, financed the vast majority, if not all of it, mm-hmm. initially. Right. So, yes, it's uh, it's shared by several space agencies, but it is the one our one low earth orbit manned platform. There's nothing else like it of its kind. So uh, we are not the only ones talking about this potential commercialization of low earth orbit. This is something that NASA has been, uh, I don't want to use the term scheming, but has been thinking about for, for definitely several years uh, and, and pushing towards. So, and this is laid out right in their documentation in Uh, one of the links that we'll have in our show notes. But as far back as 2017, NASA had begun taking real policy steps to stimulate this low-Earth orbit economy. What they're looking to do, essentially, is to, right now, a vast majority of the low-Earth orbit missions are partially or fully sponsored by NASA or by a governmental facility. So, the European Space Agency or by the Russian space, uh, space intelligence. Um, those trips are all going to be financed, governmentally speaking. So what NASA is looking to actually do is to start bringing in more of the commercial sector, bringing in more of these capitalistic players, uh, and stimulate this market space enough where that at a certain point in time, NASA is just one of the many customers for this market space. And why do they want to be a customer versus having control of everything? That seems kind of like a backward step. Right. So that that is a step back technically. But what you have to look at is that NASA is not does not have the same objectives as these other private organizations. Um, so, for example, if I'm a company that wants to get in on the ground floor of this of this new LAO market space. I want to put up a hundred satellites, let's say, to provide high speed connection over a, a very small swath of the planet. In the past, NASA has has sponsored a vast majority of that of that feat. Um, but the issue is when you have these larger players coming in, these larger commercial players coming in and stimulating the economy, they they re- realistically have way more capital, way more money to work with than NASA probably does. When NASA sees the econ- this economy stimulated, we're essentially stimulating tax dollars, right? Uh, so governmental revenue because we're increasing the economy in a previously untapped market. Yeah, so said another way, you're saying that NASA's objective is to put these tax dollars that fund them into work to explore good things such that eventually it can help with the U.S. economy and the mm-hmm. U.S. general good, whether that's discovering new things that improve lives here on Earth or that's creating businesses that can fill in behind them. But they are not necessarily trying to run everything. In fact, a lot of their money currently is going into the International Space Station, making sure that thing stays afloat, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, And they want to put that money, take it away from the International Space Station, and put it into new spaces. They want commercial 
companies to take over the low Earth orbit, the International Space Station, etc., because that will allow them to take out their money and put it into something else, and that will indicate that they they are finding the U.S., um, the people, the world are finding good uses for low Earth orbit that is improving our lives in some useful way. Right. You can kind of think about it in uh, in terms of like those Russian nesting dolls, right? But in reverse. So like Earth is that that tiniest little Russian nesting doll, and then low Earth orbit is that next one. Um, and so NASA's trying to stimulate that market space, and so it's until it's full, until it's kind of self sufficient, so that it's it's not run by NASA anymore. There's multiple companies um, making making product and making profit by operating in that low Earth orbit. NASA can then once that's populated, step into the next highest Russian nesting doll and put way more of their efforts and way more of their money into exploring the moon, into exploring past lunar orbit, into exploring Mars. They have all that freed up, all that that capital freed up because low Earth orbit is running itself, right? It's being run by these these commercial companies, these commercial entities. Right. So that's kind of how NASA sees it almost seeding these market spaces as you move further and further out from Earth. Okay, that makes sense. That's kind of what, yeah, that's kind of NASA's um, future plans in terms of what, what they see. Right on. So if they're seeing this for low Earth orbit and they're trying to make the commercial space takeoff, talk about what they've tried to do. Um, manned missions were a big thing that they're hoping to take off. So manned missions are, uh, let's take a step back. They NASA actually in twenty. 20- uh, 2019 set up an independent market study with 12 of what I would call kind of the biggest the biggest players. Some of the typical aerospace companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and SpaceX, um, but they were also working with some consulting companies who maybe have a little bit of a better grasp of economic prediction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they found is it is varied. Um, they were essentially looking at number one, the usefulness of and the investment worth of having the International Space Station, and then also looking at the economic viability of just the uh, low Earth orbit marketplace as a whole. What they found is kind of a, a mixed bag, essentially. Most of the organizations found that the the presence of manned flight in space uh the presence of having that that international space station is either like just breaking even or very minimally economically viable so we can continue to to finance some sort of manned station like that but the manned flights are are quite expensive um none of the several of the organizations actually found that there's not economic viability for even a single space station while others found that they could, they could reasonably maintain at least one. And now this manned that you're speaking to is different from the humans going into space in like a tourism standpoint, right? That's yes. something that is possible if people want to pay Virgin Galactic to go to space, and that's almost always low Earth orbit. That's mm-hmm. still possible. That that can be viable, but having manned. Uh, bases for other reasons doesn't seem useful. Yeah, yeah. They even they even looked into kind of a landlord strategy, 
almost like the International Space Station would be for rent. Um, so someone could, and it doesn't lay out exactly who would own the space station. It probably would be a conglomerate of different different players, whether it stayed in governmental hands or was actually run by by a certain company in the private sector mm-hmm. um, or in the commercial sector, rather. So they looked at it essentially like, is, is uh, low Earth orbit tourism even viable to bring people up and to house them in any sort of space station? And so that was considered in their market studies and they didn't find that as being very viable they said as the prices excuse me as the cost goes down to bring manned flight to space they will continue to see more return obviously of the tourism market but it's really expensive and really dangerous to have someone to have manned flight in space um or relatively pretty dangerous there has to be a lot of fail safes and a lot of uh, redundant systems to keep people alive in the event of catastrophe. Um, and so even even as you lower the bar, a lot of these markets are not finding a huge amount of like space tourism viability. Right. So maybe in the next 20 years, it's more of a novelty. Like you've already seen entrepreneurs mm-hmm. go into space and you will continue to see that, but it's not going to be something that a company pegs their entire worth on it's hard right. to make a company that is doing a bunch of rocket launches to have that be their of people have that be their only income source right exactly okay so yeah so moving away from the manned flight they're then looking at just maintaining any sort of unmanned you know autonomous low earth system that's exclusively we're pretty much looking at satellites putting satellite networks of some sort in space Right, right, exactly. And that's that's the main focus. Some other things that NASA was, uh, they've done a lot of research into figuring out if you can do useful research and development of products, of services, of, you know, medicine, etc. Mm-hmm. in space. And they, they dedicate uh, in one of their 100 page papers they dedicate 20 of the pages to looking into drug development and so i i dove into that trying to understand is that something that is coming down the pike and will be really useful in the next 10 to 20 years uh so i I looked into the studies that they're referencing i read what they spoke of and one thing that's really important to understand for drug discovery just very briefly is it is very expensive. So any improvement you can make in the drug discovery and commercialization process can be really helpful. So NASA, it had been theorized in the 1980s or 1990s that you can create crystals uh, really easily in space because they don't have, there's no gravity. Mm -hmm. There's microgravity. It's very, very light. Um, So for that reason, and I'm going to gloss over this, but you you can create uh, these crystals from proteins. Proteins are what govern the body primarily. So if you can understand what's happening to these proteins and what shape they make, because these proteins are really small and they can interact with a bunch of things, but you need to understand how they're formed, what shape they're in, all that stuff. If you have a single protein in your hand, it's wiggling about and it's small. So instead, what they try and do is they try and basically turn this protein into a bunch of proteins stacked together and frozen um, in a quote-unquote crystal. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, and if the crystals are very large and very pure, you can use some fancy 
frequency-based imaging techniques that engineers know a little bit about to figure out what the protein actually looks like in this frozen state. Then, theoretically, you could use that protein, and, and they do use these proteins and these crystals all the time in drug development, um, to then figure out how something's working, what drug they can make, if the drug is being somewhat effective in the theorized mechanism of action, how it's going to work. But the issue here is how important is that microgravity for making a crystal better? Proteins, you know, on Earth, they're, they're subjected to heavy gravity, so they're kind of sitting at the bottom of a Petri dish in some fluids, and as the fluids evaporate and the proteins get closer together and become a solid, uh, there's some different effects that are kind of pushing them to maybe not... Uh, become a cube, become a rectangle, and become these these shapes that need to be really big and really long. So theoretically, space was supposed to help that. Uh, and it might, but it looks like there's other innovations. For example, trying to make these protein crystals in uh, gels. So think of like shaving, shaving gel, um, but in a different form where if you have a bunch of crystals or proteins in there, they can still interact because there's enough ability to move throughout this gel so they can still crystallize, but you don't have to be, and, and eventually the gel will go away slowly over time and the, the crystals will form. That type of strategy for making these fancy crystals to improve drug development uh, is just about as good as the microgravity in space. So. The latest research shows that maybe there isn't that much utility in making these protein crystals and improving drug development uh, for research and development in space. Right. So we that that conclusion is kind of we kind of come to that we kind of came to that a couple times in our research, right? That certain niche technologies that NASA was was kind of trying to to champion or to highlight and say these are the reasons to move to low earth orbit sometimes are a little bit hyped up right definitely yeah and and what's tough and i think we need to keep in mind is that they're hyped up yet there could be other research and development or things we haven't thought of uh second order effects if you want to think of that um that could be very useful in microgravity in Mm -hmm. low earth orbit but the things that nasa thought were going to be the highest potential and they've they put on the international space station have been studying for you know two decades well they're not really panning out right and to be fully transparent so john and i did uh quite a bit of of reading into some of the documentation that nasa was putting out in terms of this this market data and that was the conclusion that john and i kind of both came to separately is that um while these technologies are definitely out there and they definitely uh, could be could see some benefits from moving to low Earth orbit, it, it doesn't seem like we're quite quite there yet. And so there does seem to be a little bit of a discrepancy between the the sales pitch, for lack of a better term, that is coming out of out of NASA versus what we are actually seeing in the market landscape. Is that fair to say? Right. And something to keep in mind is that. We said from the very beginning, and this is totally true, there are a lot more low Earth satellites going into space to create things that will be useful. So maybe we can pivot to that and talk about where we actually see this low Earth orbit market going in the next 
10 to 20 years. Right. And then in directly from a lot of those, the NASA key findings in the NASA documentation was that they are, they are waiting. They have all these potentials, potential technologies that could take off in low Earth orbit. They're waiting for that, that quote unquote, that killer app to come along. Something that opens the floodgates and kind of says, oh, low Earth orbit is hugely beneficial for this one thing. And this one thing is very lucrative. So let's do it. Now, all of a sudden, we have the market viability to say that we can we can make a killing off this. We can make a profit. Right now, I think that's what John and I found is that there doesn't quite seem to be that killer app other than these telecom satellites in low Earth orbit. We think that they're kind of not necessarily missing the boat, but maybe not focusing on necessarily the right things. And, and that is really our killer app. That is really the big innovation that we can see right now on our horizon. Right. And so maybe let's talk about those companies that we talked about or that are doing this telecom that you're referencing. So we, we talked about the internet um, in, you know, rural Montana or whatever you referenced. And so you see these companies um, like Amazon, OneWeb, uh, potentially rest in peace. We'll get to that later. Mm, Um, Starlink through SpaceX, they are launching or planning to launch uh, tens of thousands of satellites uh, across low Earth orbit such that each person always has a satellite overhead that will allow their phone to eventually connect to the satellite and stream YouTube if you want, you know, message your friends. We could hold this podcast conversation over uh, that type of internet connection anywhere in the world. Right. So it is kind of, I didn't bring this up on purpose, but it is kind of uh, going back in our discussion. It's looking to make our current like networking kind of obsolete, right? Rather than having to build that infrastructure all over the planet and put up those cell towers in places where you want service, we will always have that overhead in low Earth orbit is what the kind of the pretty picture is at the end, right? Right, right. And I I think you'll still see in big city centers, you'll still see Wi-Fi, you know, people paying for Wi-Fi probably because there will still be advantages of Wi-Fi in certain ways that, you know, a satellite overhead might be overburdened but when you get out really rural you're not going to have a ton of people demanding internet that's why they don't put internet out there right now so i think there'll be a balance of both services and we talk about the amazon spacex being able to do this in the next 10 20 years one thing that's really interesting for today our discussion is there isn't a ton of technology advancement that really needs to be done. Uh, of course, there's still a bunch of techno- technological hurdles, but all of them are solvable. There aren't some crazy breakthroughs that have really made this possible other than maybe doing this launch, landing rockets. That was pretty crazy. But SpaceX and Amazon, at least, seem to be in a position and there seems to be enough demand and they seem to have the commitment to make this constellation of satellites across the globe work in the next 10 20 years slowly getting off the ground right so i know some people look at it as uh, i know a lot of people in the scientific community look at problems as either a physicist problem or an engineering problem and so like a physicist a physics problem is like we don't currently have the technology we don't currently have the math or the 
the the theorems to lay out how we could even do this physically speaking it's inconceivable you'd say right it's inconceivable the the technology has not been invented yet whereas now we like we're talking above spacex and um ula they have the technology to reliably get us to low earth orbit so it becomes an engineering problem of how do we do it there for how do we do it there how do we get us there the most effectively right Right, and maybe it's worth talking about once we get there, once we have all these satellites in place, uh, what that really means for society. So we talked about how you know you could be in rural Montana with Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. but I, I honestly think that's one of the the smaller impacts. Instead, it's the, the idea of everybody now in Africa, in rural India, in mountainous regions that were previously untapped by many utilities, now have you know internet, and that seems pretty weird but that is is very much possible one actually really cool before we get into society impact um i keep saying that like someone could have their phone connected to the satellite Mm -hmm. and while spacex and amazon actually their plan is to send satellite information down to effectively a maybe it's top your building that has like a, a an antenna that is capturing the the signal there's a company called link who has proven that it is in fact possible to uh have just your standard android phone connect to one of their satellites directly from space what this means is that if you are in you know say the mountainous region of ecuador you don't have to have someone putting up a big antenna to collect the the internet and then send it to your phone your phone can just immediately connect to it. So if you have all these people across the world that don't need much more than just your typical even $80 Android phone to connect to the internet, that seems like something that people will eventually be able to afford in those situations. And you can start thinking about how everyone connected potentially, quote unquote, unlocks the human potential. You'll have bigger markets. You'll have more people creating services for their communities and for other communities does that does that resonate with you? Yeah, it does. And I think it resonates with not just me, but with, you know, uh, increasingly sweeping the globe, I think is the the thought that access to the internet or basic yeah, internet access is starting to become very much viewed as like a, an essential human right. And I think actually, I believe this is in 2017 or 2018, that the Human Rights Council of the United Nations declared that fact that it is a basic internet right or a basic human right rather to access the internet so i know a lot of a lot of first world companies for or first world countries rather first are looking at providing that essentially trying to blanket their country in free accessible internet right and not all technology is good we talk about that a lot so there will be some downsides you'll see some people Maybe there's more hacking and things aren't as safe, mm-hmm. or maybe the people in you know rural Africa uh, are less happy because they see themselves compared to these rich uh, first world countries. I know the television has come to Africa in some areas, and a lot of people become sad. That's mm-hmm. that's the story because they see the Kardashians of the world and everything that they live in and fret about, and said they're just trying to get clean water if they can. Right. Are you saying that the Kardashians are the single uh, most negative thing in the world? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Oh, I God. could never. Okay. okay. Uh, they're amazing. <laughs> um, 
some other things if we are willing to move past the internet yes are talking about some of the some of the, we talked about the advanced researchers and them being able to uh, research what's going on in the environment. Well, that's happening more and more. For example, in the next five years, there are three satellites going up, one by NASA, one by the European Space Agency, and one by South Korea that will allow them to uh, monitor North America, Europe, and Asia, respectively, for a bunch of pollutants in the air, for nitrogen dioxide, smog, formaldehyde, aerosols, due to some ultraviolet sensors that they have cool and if they can do this which they should be able to then you can start to tamp down on some of these climate change negative externalities which is just a fancy word to say uh, a company can like a factory in china can create a bunch of smog and put it up into the air and it's hurting the world but they're not really paying for that hurt that hurt is just happening uh, so they don't really need to worry about the cost. They don't pay for it. The entire society pays for it and almost subsidizes their ability to make these goods. So if you have a North America satellite that's monitoring all the pollution, you can start to see, oh, this factory is making way more pollution than it intended to, uh, or it, it says it is. Mm-hmm. So we need to go and make sure that that, that factory is accountable or... We need to make sure that with the Paris Accords, uh, the environmental accords, theoretically, you could keep countries a little bit more uh, accountable for this, as well as you could see how countries are affecting other countries. So right. smog floats up in the air and then it goes somewhere. So you can see that, oh, the Chinese factories are really harming Taiwan. Like Taiwan is getting the brunt of that and and maybe there there's a little conflict but maybe there's a settlement to be had between china and taiwan as i say that i realize that's probably two terrible countries to use that as an example of because they largely hate each other uh but all of those things become possible it seems pretty cool another in a similar vein for the environmental side is for disaster recovery for example the uh british british petroleum oil spill that happened in the uh you know early teens or 2010 or so uh the oil that spilled out they had satellites monitoring uh what was happening on earth and they had a couple sensors in the ocean to monitor where the oil was they're trying to map where is the oil so that they can take the necessary precautions to clean up the land and not fish in those areas and over the past decade they've realized that through observations and medical records and anecdotes that they missed a fair amount of the oil. There's still a lot of oil spillage that wasn't contained. And so with current technology that allows for better imaging um, in the future, as well as more sensors, putting these sensors in the sea and having those sensors be able to communicate more with these, say, Starlink, um, SpaceX, Amazon, things of the world, that will allow them to actually better monitor the natural disasters and keep Mm -hmm. those companies accountable in that sense too. Yeah, so for better or worse, it would be an increase in some surveillance, right? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely definitely one thing that is an impact to that. And I think we can kind of save that for the uh, one of the later sections. Um, But as a part of that surveillance, sometimes the surveillance is is used well in the case of trying to keep companies um, accountable for their negative externalities. Another way potentially useful is ultra 
consistent GPS that is faster and more precise. So GPS right now, very briefly, it's in middle Earth orbit, so it's actually pretty far away, and there's only about four satellites that your phone is connecting to at all times. By saying middle, out... middle Earth orbit, you are just asking for a Lord of the Rings joke, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to make it because... Thank you. I I'm think it's adult. also medium Earth orbit or whatnot, but <laughs> MEO. Um, anyways, it, your GPS on your phone takes a minute to, to recognize where you are, what direction you're facing. I've had this plenty where I pull out my phone, I put in an address, I hit go, and... Apple Maps or Google Maps is like, it knows roughly where I am, but it doesn't know if I'm on this street facing that way. It doesn't know if I'm on the overpass because it, it mm-hmm. it's about five meters is roughly the accuracy of our current GPS. Well, is planning to put up, I think, 500 satellites or something like that in low Earth orbit. So it's closer and there'll be more of them that allow a faster connection and allow one centimeter resolution wow so they will always be able to know where their cars are where their cars are going so that they uh, don't crash if if car companies today if tesla decided we're gonna just run our cars and know their location only by the gps location you would see crashes all the time because if they're accurate within five meters a car swinging back and forth five meters is a disaster (laughs) a car swinging back and forth one centimeter that's something that we can totally work with. So mm-hmm. the car company uh, Geely, G-E-E-L-Y, we'll put this in the show notes, they're developing this smart three-dimensional mobility ecosystem to improve their autonomous vehicles and other things that their cars need for location data. Right. Yeah, Having being able to pinpoint all that stuff over, over a network like that would be, would be insane. I mean, just think about something as... Uh, with the coronavirus, I know this is this is ever present. Just think about if someone who tested positive for the virus was sitting in the same restaurant as you. Um, you would, if we had that type of resolution, they, the health organization, maybe would reach out and say, "Hey, you were sitting across from this person at a restaurant for roughly twenty minutes. You know, you were within six feet of this person for roughly twenty minutes." you are more at risk than the person that was on the other side of the restaurant the entire time and you did not get within six feet of this person. That would be pretty crazy to be able to to be able to see. Right. You'd have some really extreme contact tracing that would be potentially really good. It, it doesn't beat being able to track what t- surfaces people are exactly touching and who sneezed where, but right. it allows you to at least think more about that um, but yeah, to your point, maybe we can kind of get into some of the unintended consequences sure. in, in that side. So that would be a really good use of this type of technology. But of course, if companies are doing this and anyone can pay for this type of data, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure this data will be sold uh, for high prices. You have some surveillance economy where maybe there's ultra targeted ads. Maybe someone realizes, oh, you sat in this seat in the library. Well, in that seat, we have this type of chair. And as the manufacturer of that chair company, we're going to target you and try and sell you that chair because we think you like it because you sit in it. And that's that's kind of like a, you know, a on the line, just advertising use of the surveillance economy. But maybe the U.S. intelligence is seeing where you're moving to track, you know, how much you should be moving if you're uh, someone that is a enemy of the state, say, take mm-hmm. Edward Snowden. It becomes really tough 
to stay out of uh, the light. If, you're, if your location can be measured to the centimeter at all times and with really advanced imaging and more analysis techniques, you can maybe no longer ever hide from the government or from whoever has access to the satellite, which if it's being commercialized, it's kind of everybody. Right, yeah. The All the conspiracy theorists' blood is just like boiling right now. Just like, yeah, oh my yeah. god. More, more than it should. I, you know, right. we're, we're painting a, a pretty dark picture in this, in this t- part. Right. But it's important to think about that. Yeah, definitely. Just how... I, it's very tough, I think, to name a technology that is completely altruistic, right? There's so many technologies out there that are... They really do have quite a capacity, a capacity for good and quite a capacity for evil, depending on what side you are sitting on. Right. And I think a perfect example of that is actually thinking about another unintended consequence of having so much space technology or space satellite technology advancing is right now a big person in the space of low Earth orbit satellites is the U.S. military or the powerhouse militaries of the world. Totally. So. If you create tools that are largely what they've been doing, they have satellites that we don't really know what they're doing, but I'm sure they're collecting information, intelligence, as we said. If you are democratizing a lot of that intelligence to the highest bidder for for good uses, you know, there's industries Mm -hmm. that will pop up, companies will figure out how to fish better, etc. Whether that's really good or not, I guess, to be determined, but uh, you will largely see U.S. intelligence and these other China, Russia, India, maybe groups, Europe, putting out even further, more advanced technologies into space so that they can stay ahead of the curve in some way, so that if a conflict were to happen, they still have the advantage in the field. Yeah, kind of always that that thought that if you see it on the market, the government knew about it 20 years ago. Right. Like So if we can continue advancing as the market, we are just inherently pushing them to do that right yeah and the military is an arms race of course so if you have better technology in space they have to stay ahead of that somehow and it might not be uh satellites that monitor more and collect more information but it might be instead uh nefarious uses of satellites whether that is uh inflicting interfering with other enemy satellites in space or some other crazy spying of spy satellites, which might mm-hmm. be happening already. So uh, we're, I mean, we're kind of painting this picture of like, let's just throw some satellites up there, right? We like let's let's fill low Earth orbit with satellites. There shouldn't be a problem. We're getting more data. We're getting more connectivity. Right. There's definitely more demand for satellites. So there's definitely many tens of thousands going up. But mm-hmm. something's wrong with that. Okay. What's that? There, there can just be so much uh, things in space. So space is crazy, right? If you have a, a small explosion of satellite on the ground on Earth, all the stuff falls back to Earth and can be cleaned up. But in space, if um, you have a crash between objects, or if you just have even if there's no crashes, but just tons of uh, objects in space, the odds of collision that we referenced at the very beginning with that ISS example uh, are very high. You have plenty of debris that can cause an issue, and you even have this effect that scientists have talked about called the Kessler effect, where one uh, collision can cause another collision, causing another, where you have a chain reaction of satellite destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a really good book, Seven Eves, um, if anyone out there 
he's looking to read into uh, into kind of this low Earth orbit stuff. It's a great book, essentially detailing what would happen if the moon exploded. Um, and the Ke- the Kessler effect has a huge part in that. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna, not gonna spoil it for you guys. We'll put that in the show notes. Yep. Um, yeah, and I mean, just looking at the amount of stuff, and I don't want to get any more specific than stuff, just looking at the amount of stuff in orbit is kind of mind-blowing. Um, I think a lot of people just think about what's up in space, and you could count them, you know, on your fingers and toes. You got this space station, and then a dozen satellites, whatever. And that's really obviously not the case at all. There's way more intentionally man-made stuff orbiting our earth um and the unintended things are what we call just like space junk or space debris and we're looking at space debris in the the hundreds of millions um just of little little pieces if you're looking at anything that's larger than about one like between one and ten centimeters roughly you're looking at about nine hundred thousand pieces which is which is crazy. So you essentially have 900,000 tiny little bullets flying around the Earth. Right. We're not talking about debris that is truly a snack wrapper in space, though that could probably cause some harm. But right. a lot of these things are metal objects, ceramic, whatnot. And mm-hmm. yeah, as, as we said before, they're flying at 20 times the speed of a bullet on Earth. Yeah. So they can do some serious damage. Yeah, I actually just... did some real quick number crunching to scope that in and give everyone a relative idea of how how bad this stuff is um so let's say you take a a very very common bolt in in the type of equipment we're walking we're talking about let's just say it's a a quarter inch uh thick or a quarter inch in diameter bolt and it's half an inch long all right so something not more than not more than half the size of your pinky we're talking about a bolt that weighs no more, again, 10 grams, maybe. It's, it's a really, really small thing. Which is a third of an ounce or so. Right, yeah. So now we are going to have that thing orbiting the Earth at about 10 kilometers a second, which is, which is pretty crazy fast. Um, the, based on different orbits that can vary from anywhere from 10 kilometers a second all the way down to 2 kilometers a second... But you kind of get the picture. So if that bolt were to impact something in space, it is releasing the amount of kinetic energy about 26 times more than the round out of a 50 caliber Barrett sniper rifle, which is, I guess, like for the uninitiated gun people, because I'm not one of those people. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not one of those gun people. I would guess that's just about as high power as you can get. I'm sure you can whip something else together. But suffice to say that that bolt is carrying about 20 times more energy than that bullet is, which is, which is really nuts. So you have to essentially protect everything in space from one of these collisions. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty wild. Yeah. So kind of looking at how do we actually do that in the 90s, a, a pretty low-tech strategy was was uh advised or was devised it's called whipple shielding after whipple is the uh is the researcher that came up with this and rather than making uh, 
making things extremely thick or just armor plating the space station, which which doesn't really work, you kind of create a second skin. So even even with a lot of these impacts, even if you can, um, even if you stop the piece of junk or the piece of debris from actually penetrating the inside of your of your capsule, you get what's called spalling. So a good example, you can kind of see spalling is if you, I'm trying to think, if you take like um, something flexible and paint it, and then you let the paint dry, and then you go to bend that flexible thing, on the apex of the curve, you can kind of see like flaking, right? Mm, Cracks form because the the paint doesn't stretch like the balloon does. Right, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, a balloon is a good example too. Like if you were to blow up a balloon and then press on it with your finger you see things cracking even the balloon's not broken that's essentially what spalling is so Mm. you're gonna get this impact on the outside of the armor plating that energy is gonna carry through to the to the inside of that plate and so even though you're not gonna actually get penetration you're gonna get these tiny little uh, specks or chunks of the armor playing fly off at at very quick speeds. Um, so spalling is something actually on the International Space Station, even if there's not penetration, astro- uh, astronauts have to be very wary of that, of actually mm. this debris that can fly around almost at like at uh, supersonic speeds that can really be very damaging. Um, so anyways, to protect from that, what they do is essentially have basically a sacrificial layer. So they will have a much thinner wall about 18 inches out from the real wall of the capsule. So what that does is it will try and take away as much of that kinetic energy as possible from these pieces of space junk. And so it'll blow through this first surface and impact the inner surface at a much, much, much slower speed at a speed that can be taken, um, easily buy this armor plating wow that's a lot of engineering and seemingly really heavy things to put into space mm-hmm. uh, but it's important because the debris can collide and co- create major damage i mean the space station if i'm not mistaken is hit frequently with debris it's it's some the stuff that they allow it to hit it is very small it's not worth moving the the space station out of the way for some of the bigger things mm-hmm. but it gets hit right um, and again, if you want a really in-depth look at a lot of that stuff, Seven Eves is is a great book that that dives in. Right on. We'll put that in the show notes. So is there anything else you want to talk about for unintended consequences? Or maybe we can speak to our, our takeaways. What have you learned? What are you, what are you going to be thinking about long-term with the satellites coming into orbit? Yeah, let's talk about our, our key takeaways. Okay. I can go first. Go um, for it, yeah. To buy you some time. Uh, so what seems really interesting to me is that we're going to see at least this internet coming into fruition, and there will be more, I'm going to call them platforms, things that we can do, ways to put things into low Earth orbit. And despite us speaking about research and development, for example, or manned uh, spacecraft sitting in low Earth orbit, not having much utility. I do think, and I'm really hopeful, that 
something will happen in the next 20 years where they discover some use. There's so many different facets to research to this world that we live in that I think we're going to learn something pretty useful and have a way to learn something even more useful long-term in low Earth orbit. Another thing that I'm going to look forward to is studying humans in space in low Earth orbit. We as as right now in the coronavirus time uh, and we're cooped up inside, we've been able to learn a little bit from the astronauts that have been really cooped up inside and truly inside uh, when when they've been in space. So there's a lot that we can learn from the human element in space. And as we put more people on the moon and Mars and far away into space in the next, uh, you know, decades, um, millennia, we will need to know how humans can react, what we can do to make them healthy so that they can discover amazing things and make our world even better. Right. Yeah, I think I think moving forward and, and human physiology in space could definitely be could definitely be another topic that we research. And I think it's something that John and I are both interested in. So if that's what you were looking for, stay tuned. Um but otherwise, yeah, from my key takeaways, I think it's really interesting to see nasa's uh changing opinions kind of on on this space and how they do how they do business with these with these frontiers moving forward um i think in the early and mid 1900s nasa i think suffered because they they set up a business strategy that was very uh what i would call mission based and closed off what that means is that they all of their their goals and their missions were were very much um you know go to the moon for example very straightforward but they had more societal impacts um or i, I would say uh, nuanced societal impacts so like maintaining superiority um then then the goal was uh, or then like the technological things that came out of it we learned a ton from taking men to the moon. There's a ton of breakthroughs that, or a ton of unintended breakthroughs that came from those missions. However, they weren't, they weren't the set goal. So as NASA moved forward, they kind of fell into this pitfall where their research and, and the missions that they were setting up really didn't equate to, really didn't align sometimes to a better society or a better functioning society. So I think NASA understood that they need to kind of pivot and allow some of the um, allow the capitalist economy to kind of drive towards some of those stated goals rather than the other way around. Um, and I think it's really cool to see them trying to usher in this more commercial uh, this commercialization of space um, with open arms with these with these other commercial players rather than trying to take everything for themselves. Um, and putting and demanding that we put all of our eggs in one basket that is NASA. So I think it's really cool to look out and see, you know, maybe in 20 years, who are the big players in space? Is it going to be our governments or is it going to be SpaceX? Is it going to be a private institution? I think that's a really cool idea to think about, um, but also something that we really need to keep tabs on. Yeah, I think that that uh, closes this up pretty well. It'd be interesting to see where NASA goes in, you know, 10 years time, 20 years. Hopefully, if this podcast is still around, we'll have some some uh, content on that as we go as well. <laughs> right. 
John, we should be podcasting from space at that point in time. Oh, we will. will. take nothing less. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> well, sounds good. I, I hope we've done a good job talking about low Earth orbit and some of the interesting economics that are going on in this space to give a paint a picture for where society is headed in the next 10 to 20 years. We will be back in two weeks' time with another episode. Yep. Send us your feedbacks. Send us any of your potential topics that you want to hear or just send us some love because that's what we need at this day and age, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> uh, on that note, we'll see you guys later. Take care. Peace out. Hello, everybody. This is John again. Thank you for listening. That concludes everything we wanted to discuss in the episode. Before you go, we want to encourage you to join and participate in the newsletter that accompanies this podcast, specifically this episode. If you're not familiar, we have a newsletter where Zach and I will ask and answer a question and then elicit responses if you are comfortable from the audience. We will then put those responses into the following week's newsletter and ask a new question that builds off the next episode. When I was growing up, I remember looking to the future and seeing it filled with space exploration. If you would have asked me 15 years ago where we were today, I would have vastly overestimated it. Think back to your views 15 to 20 years ago. Are you satisfied or does it meet your expectations of where we are with our expansion into space? Did you think we would be further? Not this far? Did you not think about it at all? Tell us why. To access and sign up for that newsletter, go to our website, weareheretomorrow.com. There you can subscribe to our newsletter, immediately get the current edition, and respond to the email to join the conversation. Mm-hmm.